Well, good morning. Glad to see you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, please be turning to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I'll remind you that last Sunday morning we began a journey through this incredible letter, which might be Paul's earliest collected epistle. In fact, I think most scholars would argue that it is his first collected epistle. It was written in A.D. 50. We can date it to there. That means it's within 20 years of Christ's ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So this is a remarkably early text, remarkably early, and therefore offers a unique window into the early work of the church. As we began that series, we spent much of our time looking at the introductory information around this letter. We saw Paul and Silas and Timothy, the authors of this letter, that they had visited the churches founded on the first missionary journey. Now they began to strike out in new territories. We know that was always Paul's desire to evangelize new peoples, new cities, new areas with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when God opened the door to Macedonia, you don't have to wonder Paul's reaction, do you? He was excited. He jumped. He leapt at the opportunity to go into this new area and bring the gospel to new people who had never heard it before. At every turn, the Macedonian mission was met with strong opposition. Strong opposition. Paul and Silas were beaten and jailed at Philippi. A riot was enticed against them in Thessalonica, where they were forced to flee to Berea. For every success they had, there was much suffering and much persecution. Through all the ups and downs of these cities, Paul's greatest concern seems to have been for the church at Thessalonica. This important city, this greatest city of Macedonia, was the hub of Roman administrative power in the region. Yet it was in that city that the missionaries met such great success. As great as the work had been in Thessalonica, it was left seemingly unfinished when the apostles were forced to leave abruptly. From the text of the letter, it's evident that Paul had hoped their exit would be short-term and that the mission team could soon return to finish this congregation's desperately needed instruction. And yet at every turn, it had been prevented. Paul was concerned about his Thessalonian brothers and sisters for this reason. And so when the opportunity arose to send Timothy back to check on the congregation, Paul seized it. Timothy was given a mission to find out the answer to many of Paul's questions about this church. Had they endured persecution? Had they persevered in the faith? Had they held to strong and sound doctrine? Had the Thessalonians believed the lies of the opposition that Paul was untrustworthy? Was there any church left in Thessalonica at all? When Paul finally received Timothy's report in 50 AD, it was a great encouragement to him. And without delay, Paul penned this letter back to the Thessalonian church. Please listen as we read the first chapter of this letter. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power 
and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. With these words, Paul commends the Thessalonian church, offering thanksgiving to God for them. And as we look at the first chapter of this early letter, there are several points worth noting. First of all, Paul desired to see in the Thessalonian believers the characteristics of a genuine faith. Second, the apostle was looking for the certainty of a living faith in their lives. And third and finally, Paul wants to see the reality of the outworking of a vibrant faith. I pray that God would help us to see the amazing faith of these Thessalonians and how they were living out that faith in their lives. I also pray that we would be inspired by this infant church for whom Paul offered much thanksgiving to God. So Paul begins this letter, as was his general approach, with an introductory prayer of thanksgiving. And so we want to begin to look here at the characteristics of a genuine faith for which Paul offers thanksgiving. Peter O'Brien, in his exhaustive study of the introductory thanksgivings in Paul's epistles, believes that the formal thanksgiving in the opening of this letter carries forward into the third chapter. While not all scholars hold to O'Brien's position, we would have to agree that nothing else by Paul even approaches that length. So this is truly a letter of thanksgiving to God, in which the missionary team always remembered the Thessalonian church in prayer. Paul does not simply mean prayer generally, although we can be sure that he did offer general prayers for this church, but that his prayers are particularly offered. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are remembering the evidence of the Thessalonian believers' faith as seen in the characteristics of their genuine faith. These are the characteristics that the Bible presents as those that are expected of all who are true believers. First, they were remembering their work of faith. Now that's to say that they were remembering the activity and action that is the outworking of their faith. Paul was not implying a work leading to faith. That's a critical distinction that we've looked at over the past several Wednesday evenings. It's a distinction between the error of works righteousness, that is, salvation by works, and the truth of the normal fruit that is the outworking of the transformative power of the Holy Spirit at work in the life of the believer. Our works do not merit even the least credit toward our own justification. But brothers and sisters, works are expected to come forth as evidence from those who have been justified by faith. The reformer said salvation is by faith alone, but the faith that saves does not arrive alone. Now, that's an important formulation because we see there that the works are not the root of salvation, but emerge as the fruit from salvation. 
And this is the point that Paul is making here. If we have been saved, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We love the wording of the old King James on that. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. This reality was evidenced in the life of the Thessalonian church who had been engaged in work that was driven by their faith. Paul has seen evidence of this while he was in Thessalonica, but it seems only to have grown more impressive in his absence. He was truly thrilled to hear that these believers were bringing forth gospel fruit, witnessing to so many about the salvation offered only in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. Second, they were remembering their labor of love. Now this refers to their bearing in love with one another within the congregation. If the first characteristic demonstrated their commitment to the community around them, this characteristic demonstrated their commitment to the Christian community into which they were called. This was a church that had come together in their faith, celebrating the family formed in Christ. They were also unified in the face of persecution. Make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters. Persecution will either strengthen or break the bonds of love in the church. If a church is superficial or fraudulent, then persecution will expose this truth. If, on the other hand, it's a true church of Christ, then its love will be tested and, in fact, strengthened. Imagine Paul's joy when he learned that in the face of severe persecution, these young believers had demonstrated their love and their commitment to one another. They had struggled together, suffered together, and had overcome challenges together by the grace of God and their love one for the other. Their labor of love demonstrated the powerful beauty of Christ's church in action. Third, the missionaries were remembering their patience of hope, which is an eschatological hope in Christ. And this is a thread that runs throughout these two Thessalonian letters where it finds itself focused over and over again on the return of Christ in glory. The Thessalonians had an abiding hope in Christ as evidenced in their willingness to endure persecution. In a brief amount of time, these believers had become a model, a model of perseverance. Paul had seen this trait while with them in Thessalonica. Even so, he desired to know if, in his absence, they had continued in the face of such strong opposition. Timothy's report testified of a church that stood strong in the face of trials. The Thessalonian church had been willing to endure great hardship for the sake of Christ, looking forward to and trusting in Christ's return to vindicate their faith. To Paul, this signaled a great evidence of the presence of a true and saving faith within the Thessalonian congregation, for it is only genuine faith that will persevere to the end. Those three characteristics of faith, love, and hope are key evidences of a born-again believer. We are to be a people of faith in Christ who live out their faith to the glory of God, but we're also called to be a people of love as our God himself is love. And finally, we are to be a people of hope, trusting in the promises of God which are given to every believer in Christ and are 100% trustworthy. These are the traits that Paul is joyful to have found in the lives of the believers in Thessalonica. 
he sees evidence of their faith, their love, and their hope. If Paul saw the external characteristics of a genuine faith being lived out in the lives of these Thessalonian believers, we should recognize that he was not surprised by this. These characteristics merely confirmed what Paul already believed, the presence of a living faith within these believers. We can see this in verse 4 where the Apostle Paul speaks of knowing their election by God. Ekloge, this word meaning their election by God. Now Paul is speaking plainly of the salvation of these believers in the plan of God. They were to be a people, Christ's people, set apart in this amazing city. Their perseverance is to be an evidence of what God is doing in them and through them. Calling them the elect of God is declaring the absolute certainty of the genuineness of the gift of their faith. But if that were not enough, Paul reflects on their response to the preaching of the word in their midst. Listen again to what Paul writes in the fifth verse of this first chapter. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Consider what all Paul is saying in that single verse. When the word was preached to you, the message was not contained in word only. Of course, in one sense, it was contained in word. Paul does not mean here that they communicated in a way other than word. It was the Apostle Paul who wrote, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Paul is not arguing that he communicated in a way other than with words. Instead, he means that the power of the message did not arrive merely because of human words. The effect of the preaching is such that Paul knows it did not rest in the power of Paul or Silas or Timothy. It was not their great skill that had so great an effect among the believers in Thessalonica. The amazing response to the preaching of the word can only be attributed to the power of the Holy Spirit working in the midst of the preached word of God. Too often we seek to elevate the earthly speaker, but the power never rests in him. It rests in the power of God's holy word and in the power of the Spirit of God. This movement of the Spirit, accompanied by the faithful preaching of the word, was a further evidence of what God was doing in Thessalonica. It served as an additional verification of a living faith in Christ. How else could you explain such a remarkable reception of the truth of the gospel except by the power of God moving mightily in their presence? The fact that the church had continued to grow in the absence of the missionary preachers demonstrated that the power was not in Paul or Silas or Timothy, though they were godly men. But the power rested in the gospel itself and in its empowerment by God. The certainty of the Thessalonian believers' faith is further confirmed by their perseverance. The scriptures attest that enduring and persevering in the faith are great confirmations of that faith. You can see that in James 1.12, Hebrews 10.36, 2 Timothy 2.12, Revelation 3.11, and so on. In fact, from a theological standpoint, perseverance is possibly the greatest test of faith, as demonstrated by Christ's parable of the sower. While one could immediately see the lack of reception of the seed that fell by the wayside, it took longer to distinguish between the other three soils. Yet over time, the seed that fell to the stony ground and the thorny ground failed 
to endure to the end. You see, brothers and sisters, it's only from the perspective of time that the seed that landed in the good and fertile soil was proven true, having persevered and endured. For as our Lord said, he who endures to the end shall be saved. In other words, all who truly belong to Christ shall persevere to the end. This was clearly applicable to the Thessalonians who had endured great persecution. We can see that Paul was happy to see those initial characteristics of the faith at work in the Thessalonian believers. Further, we can see that he was elated to see the evidence of the genuineness of their living faith. But now we want to come to our third and final point this morning. We know then that Paul was surely overjoyed to see a powerful outworking of this vibrant faith in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. These Thessalonian believers were not hiding their lamps under a basket, but were putting the light of Jesus Christ on full display for all to see. Paul says in verse 6 that the Thessalonians had been imitators of the missionary team and of Christ. That's the message we read over and over again in Scripture. We are to imitate those who we see imitating Christ. In fact, that's the entire point of discipleship. As Paul points out when he says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. We look to those who can model that which has been faithfully modeled for them. And this reinforces why it's essential to be in a sound church with mature believers. The Thessalonians were living examples of this behavior. They had imitated Paul and Silas as those men were imitating Christ. Yet Paul was not simply speaking of imitating generally. He was pointing to something very specific that was modeled and imitated. Look at the end of verse 6 and you'll see what was specifically being modeled. Paul records, Having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. It was not just that the Thessalonian believers had received the word and persevered but that they had imitated the Christ-like behavior of Paul and Silas in doing so with joy. Now, when we are speaking of joy, we're not referring to a state of happiness that comes and goes, depending on our outer circumstances. We're referring to the work of the Spirit within the believer that produces within him the fruit of the Spirit, including joy. Amazingly, these Christians in Thessalonica progressed in their sanctification quickly such that those who were imitating Paul quickly became models for others to imitate. Paul makes this very clear in verse 7. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. You who had started as imitators are now the tupos, the type or pattern. In a stunningly short time, these men and women of God had become great examples of the faith. A faith lived out with joy, even in the face of persecution. Finally, this newborn congregation demonstrated another surprising outwork of their vibrant faith in that they had become great evangelists. They were not satisfied to simply keep the gospel to themselves, nor were they satisfied to proclaim it only to their family and friends. These young believers evangelized Thessalonica, and also the entire region of Macedonia. And if that were not impressive enough, Paul said they were responsible for carrying the word into Achaia, the neighboring region. 
In so short a time, these new believers had taken the message of the gospel out into the world. In fact, Paul said, half joking, you're leaving nothing for us to preach in the region. Can you imagine? Paul was worried that he might find a decimated church, but instead to the glory of God, he finds a thriving, joyous, missional church. It is a missional church with a great testimony. This is revealed by piecing together the history of this church from both Acts and this letter. Last Sunday, Luke recorded that Paul went to the Thessalonian synagogue where he was met with a mixed reaction. A few Jews believed. Many God-fearers trusted the gospel. Luke also records that there were a, a number of leading women of Thessalonica who also joined the church. These leading ladies were likely God-fearing Greek women. And so that's the full report we get from Acts. But something had clearly changed in the months between the record of Acts and the writing of this letter. We can see it in verse 9. Listen to what Paul writes there. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The language that Paul is using here would refer to pagans who have entered the church. This is not the language that Paul would use to describe Jews or God-fearing Greeks. What this tells us is that the church had been so busy evangelizing Thessalonica that many pagans had trusted in Christ and had entered the church. So many, in fact, that it was widely spoken about. In this church, many had turned from idols to worship the living and true God. What an incredible statement that is. If we were going to spend three years in the Thessalonian letters like we did Romans, we would want to give this phrase its own sermon, the living and true God. What a beautiful testimony this church proclaimed. In closing, I want to go back to where we started. Paul was thankful for this church because they were authentic Christians. They were a church that had remained faithful despite danger and opposition. They were a church that had grown in their sanctification. They had a testimony, and they were sharing their faith. They were a church of individuals who had placed their faith in Christ. Thus, they had peace with God. Because of that faith, they were waiting in hope for Christ's appearing, knowing that their faith would be vindicated on that great day. They trusted that Christ delivers from the wrath to come. My friends, that is a phrase that seems to be uncomfortable for the modern church, isn't it? but it's nonetheless a reality. The Word of God makes it clear that all those who are outside of Christ are at enmity with God. This means that for them there is no peace with God. And where there is no peace with God, there is certain judgment and wrath. Paul can celebrate the status of these believers because they will not experience God's wrath. I pray that everyone here this morning has that assurance in Christ that they too have been delivered from the wrath to come. There is no more urgent matter to settle. If you were here this morning and you realize that you have never experienced peace with God, it can be found only in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray that everyone would leave here today with the assurance that they have trusted in Christ and in Christ alone. For those here who belong to Christ, there's another challenge I would like to leave you with this morning. Consider the fellowship that we are reading about. They are so young in the faith that Paul seemed gravely concerned about them. He seemed to worry that they had been left 
too early and were unprepared for the troubles that were coming their way. And yet within a few months, this church had grown numerically and spiritually. They were standing for Christ in the face of danger. They were utterly faithful with a testimony and impact on the entire region. I ask you, brothers and sisters, this morning, what then is our excuse? We are not newborns in the faith, yet the Thessalonian believers put us to shame. I pray that we would really think about, truly think about, the resources and opportunity that God has blessed us with today as His church. I pray that this young Thessalonian church would inspire us to serve our Lord boldly and faithfully to the glory of God, our Father.